Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Clayton Kershaw, 34 years old, beginning his 15th big league season. Here he comes to the payoff, and he gets him. Good depth to the slider to strike out Buxton, and that's how Kershaw's 2022 begins. Arise, one of the hardest players to strike out in the game, goes down, and Kershaw has back-to-back Ks to start his season. Swings and misses. Kershaw with another strikeout and a slider. Receives another strike three. It's wow, Clayton Kershaw just cutting through him like a hot knife. Through. He gets him swinging and stays perfect with his sixth K through three and a third. Wow, Luis Arise, the hardest player in baseball to strike out. Kershaw's gotten him swinging both times. Slider. Oh, baby. Follows it up with the slider for his eighth K. Wow, back-to-back strikeouts and two gone in the fifth. Another strikeout. That is 10. 11. He is perfect through six innings. He strikes out the side in the sixth. Curve gets him swinging. He had to break out the signature pitch at some point for a K. Up the middle. What a play. Oh, there's a play. It's from Gavin Lux. Seven perfect innings from Clayton Kershaw. and the handshakes in the dugout with Blake trying continually to warm and kind of read between the lines here that Kershaw through seven perfect innings is going to hand it off to the bullpen. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, April 14th, 2022. And what you just heard was a little bit of yesterday's most, I don't know, interesting, controversial, frustrating, infuriating, however you want to put it, moment, which was Clayton Kershaw taking a perfect game through seven innings, then getting removed. And man, were the takes flying. Matt, I'm sure we both have a lot of thoughts on this, but can we at least agree on this? At no point was Clayton Kershaw ever going nine innings. Like you could have said that in the third inning, the fourth inning, the seventh inning. It was never, ever, ever, ever going to happen, ever in any universe, and anyone who thought otherwise, I think is maybe fooling themselves about the particulars about, I don't know, baseball in 2022, Clayton Kershaw's shoulder, the playoff hopes of the Dodgers. Like this was never, ever going to happen, was it? I think that's probably right. And I'll admit I was not paying close attention to the game until I heard it was like he was through six. Um, But just because like it was kind of inevitable doesn't make it any kind of less disappointing in my mind, I guess, you know? Um, So... 
that's that's my kind of take. And like I totally understand all the reasons why he was taken out and all I, I understand all that stuff. It doesn't mean it's like not disappointing, right? Like it just at least from, from my perspective, it's I don't want to say lame, but it's kind of lame. It, I mean, from a fan point of view, absolutely, I wanted to. I can tell you this. I can tell you exactly what every Dodger fan was thinking. They were thinking back to 20, I think it was 14, when Clayton Kershaw threw one of the best-pitched games I've ever seen. He no-hit the Rockies, and the reason it wasn't a perfect game is because Don Mattingly insisted on keeping in Hanley Ramirez to play shortstop, even though he had, I want to say, Miguel Rojas on the bench. And what happened? Ground ball to Henry Ramirez, and he booted it. So everyone was thinking, okay, this is going to be the time. Listen, here's the thing. I... I think this was the perfect scenario for this to never happen, right? First and foremost, Clayton Kershaw missed like half of last season with shoulder problems or forearm problems, arm problems, however you want to put it, right? Last year, he pitched four innings on July 3rd, and then he missed the next two plus months, and he came back for a couple of games in September, got hurt again, and he missed the entire postseason, right? We're not talking about a guy coming off a full season. We're not talking about a guy coming off a full spring training, right? He barely pitched in spring training. It was 38 degrees in Minnesota. They were up by a lot. And there is actually a great quote. Dave Roberts uh, said that Kershaw asked him to go back out for the seventh when he was through six at 69 pitches. And then Kershaw said, I wanted to get to 80 or 85 pitches because that's all he'd been built, built up to. So the idea that you could just say, oh, now you're going to throw like 110 pitches was never going to happen. Like Kershaw is there to help win playoff games. And on a warmer day later in the season, if he hadn't had arm issues, like fine, totally. I get it. I just I was shocked that anybody would think otherwise. And you know what kind of stood out to me? There were some pitchers on Twitter, and the pitchers, most of them, were were on board, like Latroy Hawkins, who I would say is pretty old school, right? And I quote, I'd much rather have Kershaw in October than April. Brandon McCarthy, who I think is much more new school, said there was barely a spring training. Nobody's fully built up. Starters were barely ready to start a real season. It's not some new age thing or whatever straw man you want to rail against. It just sucks. And then you had Jake Arietta with opposing takes. And I guess that's maybe not the least surprising thing in the world, but I don't know. The takes around this mushroomed into something ridiculous. I, I mean, this was just a no hitter. I'd say like, whatever, you know, whatever, no big deal. Perfect games. There hasn't been one in 10 years. There's been what? 23 in baseball history. Like I saw Kershaw say, Oh, my slider was dead in the seventh inning. Okay. Just come out th- throwing fastballs. See if you can get lucky on six outs, just like throwing fastballs and slight cut fastballs and see if you can just kind of get through. I mean, I, I understand it doesn't mean it wasn't disappointing. His last fastball that he threw was his slowest of the day. It was down to 88.6. He said himself his slider didn't have enough bite. Like, I get it. it. It's fun. I wanted to see it as a fan. I actually thought David Cohn on the Yankee game had the best take yesterday. He's like, you can take him out after the seventh and you can wear the criticism. But if you put him out there for the eighth and he gets through that, even if it takes him like 50 pitches, you cannot take him out before the ninth inning. And now you're screwed, right? Like after the seventh is sort of a now or never choice. And I think there's like quality arguments for either direction of this. I think where I got really frustrated was that this was some sort of referendum on the state of baseball. As though it's Dave Roberts's job to save the entertainment value of baseball by keeping in Clayton. No, it's his job to win playoff games. It's his job to get there. You know what I mean? And I think people are maybe conflating cold day coming off an arm injury 
with, oh, well, it's a third time through the order. Well, it's not. They didn't take him out because they didn't think he was good anymore. He had thrown his number of pitches. They want to save him for the postseason. Honestly, they had two outs in the sixth inning. He should have, like, fake intentionally walked a batter and been taken out. Honestly, like, oh, just save, save everyone a lot of edge. I'm serious. Like, if, they, if, you, if you knew he wasn't going to do it, then, like, actually just, like, just stop it. It's seriously it's just like it's because it, you knew then you knew you're walking into this like at that point just just let someone get on base. Uh, before I'm going to leave this with one last bad take and I won't say who it is but it made me laugh really hard. It was a local newscaster in L.A. Uh, who pointed out that he thought that perfect games were more memorable than World Series, which I strongly disagree about. And he pointed to Sandy Kovacs' perfect game in 1965. And then what happened? As I remember, Sandy Kovacs pitched well into the 1970s and. <laughs> Nothing bad ever happened after that. Uh, it's a good way to start a day. Okay, we are kind of back to our regular season uh, format here, right? This is the opener. We're going to start with the, the first couple things that are interesting to us. Take a break. We'll get into our three batter minimum, our three big topics of the day. And then we're going to get to one of my favorite topics. We're going to get back to Matt and I each picking like a guy you should know more about. I love the guys. I can't wait to get to the guys. We're not going to do separate rants anymore, although I'm sure we'll rant on our way there. So let's continue on with some... Um, you know, it's been a fun week, right? Like baseball has been really cool this first week. There are a couple of early season surprises we want to get to immediately. I don't know how you start anywhere that's not Cleveland and Stephen Kwan and the amazing Guardians offense who has 45 runs in six games. Now, I I was going to say this, Matt, before I saw that you put it in our notes document. They did play the Royals a lot. <laughs> the Royals have an ERA, like, I don't know, 620 or whatever. And it's not just because of Cleveland, like they cannot pitch at all. Uh, but Stephen Kwan obviously is the story of the season, right? He's reached base 18 times through the first five games. Well, it's actually, it was now 19 through six, but it was, okay. he set the record doing 18 through the first five. Yes. And um, I, I don't know, it, were you following Stephen Kwan before last week? Like, had you followed his trajectory through the through the minors at all, through the through spring training? I only knew his name, honestly, mostly because like he he bubbled up during spring training where it was like, oh, here's this guy, like the Indians haven't signed an outfielder. They really believe in Stephen Kwan. And yes. that was basically, that was, I think you mentioned it on a podcast a few weeks ago, frankly. I, that's, I think that's Actually, probably what brought, up, brought him to my attention. So good yes, on you. Or, or the Guardians either, too. But no, I, I did mention it last week on our, uh, on our what do we do, 60 stats for 30 teams. He was my guy because his minor league strikeout numbers were ridiculous. He's not going to keep this up, obviously. I saw someone say, oh, well, they knew he was coming. That's why they didn't have to go sign an outfielder. No, come on, get out of here. How long have we been talking about Cleveland needing an outfielder? But you're right. The offense has been very good, right? And we just said 45 runs in six games is fantastic. There are some interesting guys doing this. Because I think if you had asked either one of us, you know, who were the good Cleveland hitters before the season start? Obviously, you say Jose Ramirez, who's fantastic. And I would have said Fran Mil Reyes, who's actually off to a pretty lousy start. And I think I might have stopped there, right? Well, look what's going on there. Yes, Ramirez has been great. Nobody's noticed because of Stephen Kwan, but he is hitting 480 with a slugging percentage over 1,000. He is a MVP caliber hitter who is going to have an MVP caliber year. Here's a question for you. Do you know who Owen Miller is? Because I can't say that I, I don't want to say I didn't know him, right? Like I was aware of his existence as a baseball player. He was one of the guys they got from San Diego in the Mike Clevenger, Josh Naylor deal a couple years ago. Last year in 202 plate appearances, Owen Miller had a 551 OPS. This year in 22 plate appearances, he's hitting 524. I can tell you which one of those numbers I think is more real, and it's not the one that's happened over 22 plate appearances against the Royals and the Reds. I don't want to dump on him. Like he is a, a good player, and I think he can be a, you know a valuable member of this team. 
but you might be getting the feeling I'm not totally buying into Cleveland, and you're right. And I'm going to let you respond before I explain why. Um, yeah, I mean Owen Miller. It's, again, he he topped out as like number the number eleven prospect in the Padres top thirty back when he was in the Padres organization. Um, I remain skeptical. It feels like you know one of those random guys who pops off to start the year every year, and people get excited because they have no other track record from the year to to go with. Quan is way more interesting to me in terms of like. He was never really a highly regarded prospect either. I think he was number 15 in the, the Guardian system during the year. But like his zone discipline, I think, is real. That's one of those things that stabilizes very quickly. There's, you know, like he doesn't swing, you know, he set the record for 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 like games without swinging and missing. And even now his one swing and miss this year was a foul tip. So you can debate whether or not that was actually a swing and a miss, but that's a whole other sort of pedantic no. argument we can get into. <laughs> not but getting like, into that. <laughs> but like, he doesn't chase bad pitches, and he seems to put the bat on the ball. So I think he's he's like an interesting player, maybe in like the Brandon Nimmo kind of mold of like a guy who's like can be a real pest and be an on base threat. I'm not sure. Like you know, he's got like a 556 betting average on balls and plays. So let's like you know slow down on Stephen Kwan, future superstar, and maybe like oh Stephen Kwan, useful high OBP guy, I want on my roster, right? So I think that like he's interesting in that regard. The Guardians, you know. And you have some numbers here that will kind of speak to this. Definitely still need some offensive help. Um, Jose Ramirez, maybe a conversation for another day. Maybe it's, it's quietly putting together a Hall of Fame caliber career. Yes. Um, um, and uh, Fran Mel's pretty good. Ahmed Rosario hits the ball hard a lot. And he's also is a pretty good player. But, like, I think that, like, and now you add Stephen Kwan to that. It's kind of interesting. But let's wait until they start playing some higher caliber competition because the the underlying numbers are not great. No, they're not. So listen, I'm obviously all in on Ramirez. I'm buying into Quan being very good, not this good. I've always liked like Rosario. I've always assumed Rosario is going to have that one random post-type really good year, and it could be this year. I like Miles Straw a lot, too. Here comes the cold water. The Cleveland offense has the fourth worst hard hit rate in baseball. Fourth worst. They are number one by a whole lot, batting average and balls in play. That's not entirely good luck, but a lot of it's good luck. Quan. Jose Ramirez, Ernie Clement, all have batting averages on balls in play above 500, which is obscene. And, you know, gravity only goes one way, right? That way is down. That number will go down. And even by the very low offensive standards of Austin Hedge's career, he is underperforming. He has zero hits in 20 plate appearances. Obviously, he's a very good defensive catcher. So there's value there. Um, I'm not buying it. Here's the other thing. We're talking about their offense. Shane Bieber, and I had to stop myself from saying Justin Bieber because I almost just did it right there. His fastball two years ago was at 94, last year 92.8, and this year in his return from arm injury, 90.8. The strikeouts are down, and that's super worrisome because they need an elite pitching staff to make up for what is going to still be a you know moderate offense, and I think Shane Bieber's velocity being down is one of the big concerns of the uh, early season for me. Okay, let's stay in the American League Central. Have you noticed that the White Sox are crushing the ball? I don't think that's a super surprise because you've got a lot of good players in the lineup, except Yuan Moncada has not played yet this year because he's hurt. AJ Pollock is already on the injured list because he's hurt. And the rest of the White Sox are absolutely pounding everything. Let's break out some very fun stack cast metrics. Number one in team exit velocity. Number two in team hard hit rate. Number two in team barrel rate. Barrels being the perfect combination of launch angle and exit velocity. A hard hit ball hit in the air is better than one hit on the ground. If you look at all the expected numbers just based on quality of contact, expected batting average, slugging, weighted on base, first, first, and first 
I'm going to quote from our friend and colleague, Andrew Simon, who put this in an email to somebody else today uh, regarding those expected numbers. Uh, To put those last three numbers in context, the entire Sox lineup through five games is performing at the level that Bryce Harper did in National League MVP last year. An entire lineup hitting like Bryce Harper. No wonder the White Sox are four and one. It's I, I was, you know, sort of shocked. I knew they were hitting well. I didn't realize they were hitting this well. Um, and I think that like, you know, Tim Anderson has been doing Tim Anderson things. He's hitting 462, just like putting the bat on the ball. Very good player. Andrew Vaughn's been really good um, in limited duty. You know, he's got a, a 614 expected weight on base. Obviously, we're talking about like 15 plate appearances, but he's hitting the ball. He's bringing the ball in the ball hard. The guy that's really standing out is Luis Robert, who is like, Seems to be coming into his own. 6'10", expected weight on base. He's only struck out once in five games this year. His strikeout rate two years ago was 32%. Last year was 21%. Now it's, I mean, again, five games, 5%. It's only at 5%, so that's going to go back up. But, like, there seems to be a very good trend here combined with just the fact that he's just, like, an incredibly gifted baseball player. So when you factor in improved strike zone discipline and, man, like, he could be an MVP. He could be an MVP candidate this year, especially when you look at how he played the second half last year when he came back from injury. I mean, the, the the White Sox coming in with all their pitcher injuries, as you kind of alluded to, I was like, oh, maybe there's you know they're going to be in trouble if you know with with Lynn out and Giolito out. Like this, there, there's there's some space here for the the Twins or maybe the Guardians or maybe the Royals. Yikes, um, <laughs> to make a run. <laughs> but if their offense is going to hit, you know. You'd be like the best offense in the league. Well, maybe not. Maybe they're going to run away with this division anyway. Yeah. And if you look at the lineup, it's not exactly like everybody's running on all cylinders. You know, like I said, Moncada is out. Uh, AJ Pollock is out. Yasmani Grandel has not done that much yet. You know, again, we're talking about like 15 or 20 plate appearances. So let's not go nuts on what's happened so far. But he hasn't done much. You know, he's got a 250 on base. He's much better than that. Uh, Josh Harrison hasn't done all that much. Uh, Eloy Jimenez has really not been very good this year. And then yesterday he hit a home run and had to leave with a sprained ankle. And that's kind of been his thing. He is consistently getting himself hurt. Like over his the course of his career, he's had a couple of serious injuries. Like, you know, he's talented, but for them to be going on all cylinders, they really need him. I am with you, by the way, on Robert as a, I don't want to say sneaky because everybody knows he's good, but you could see him in the MVP conversation, not just because his bat is fantastic. He's a really good outfielder. I don't think he's quite Byron Buxton, but he's like that next level. And, you know, if they do well and he stays healthy, I do not find it hard at all to think he's going to be like a top three MVP guy. Yeah, I think he already has four stolen bases too. So he could be, a, you know, he could easily put up, he easily could put up a 30 30 season, which is the kind of thing that gets a lot of people's attention. Yes, he has the only four stolen bases for the White Sox <laughs> this year. Let's finish off our opening topic by uh, discussing something we all knew was going to happen Jake DeGrom was going to get hurt. Taiwan Walker was going to get hurt and the Mets pitching was going to be phenomenal. And it is so far. They have a 251 ERA tied for the second best in baseball. They have a 261 fielding independent pitching, which is tied for second best. They have a tied for the best with the White Sox, I believe, strikeout rate. They have one of the lowest walk rates in baseball. This is all without Jacob deGrom. And I don't want to downplay Max Scherzer, but he's like typical Scherzer, which is great, but I don't I don't think he's done anything that's out of the ordinary for him. You know, it's not like he's upped his game because it's not exactly possible. They have some other dudes who have been amazing. You got to start with Tyler McGill, who I remember last year came up and was like a perfectly cromulent fifth starter, you know, like a guy who could give you five decent innings. Well, so far 
He's doing his best Jake DeGrom impersonation. He's thrown 10 and a third shutout innings, 11 strikeouts, no walks. All of a sudden, he touches 99. Tell me if you saw that coming. His fastball average is up from 94.6 to 96.4. And because of that, I don't think enough people are talking about the changes he made to the shape of his slider, which went from having below average drop last year to four inches above average. So now he's throwing 99 with a slider that drops and he's like unhittable. And I know two starts. Is he going to be able to keep this up? I don't know. Is DeGrom ever going to be healthy again? I don't know. But if McGill is for real... And then you say, okay, DeGrom, Scherzer, McGill with Chris Bassett, who's been good, and Carlos Carrasco behind you. All of a sudden, I feel slight twinges of regret about not picking the Mets to make the playoffs, <laughs> as I as I did. The other guy I want to highlight here is Drew Smith. And maybe because it's because he has such an anonymous name, you know, like Drew Smith could be literally any person. I had no recollection that he has been around the Mets since 2018 he made 27 relief appearances for the Mets in 2018 I barely even remembered he existed they got him for Lucas Duda five years ago so in 2018 he was fine and then he got hurt missed 2019 with Tommy John and pitched a little bit over the last two years he's had like 60 relief appearances for the Mets I barely know who he is all of a sudden this year six strikeouts no walks in 13 batters faced What's happening, I believe, is he's got this like cutter slider and it's moving differently. And I really liked this quote from The Athletic. He said, I kept the same grip. I just manipulated a little differently now. I think curveball in my head while I'm holding it with my cutter grip, which turns it into a slider. And you wonder why it's hard to do pitch classification on these guys. Drew Smith looks like a dude. Uh, Edwin Diaz, reliably good. Buck Showalter doesn't seem to ever want to use Adam Adovino, but when he does, he's been fantastic. Our old friend Seth Lugo is there. Should I feel regret about not being more in on the Mets? Because I, I do a little. Um, I, I, I mean, McGill, McGill is obviously anything close to like being this good. That definitely changes the trajectory of the team and gives them a little bit more breathing room with easing, easing um, uh, Degrom back back into things. I still think the bullpen depth is probably going to be an issue. I mean, Smith is really interesting, and I actually it seems like there might be a little bit of a parallel with what Smith's doing and with what McGill's doing in terms of the shape of their their slider becoming it more of like an up down vert, with vertical movement. So I wonder if that's kind of like a a thing going on internally with 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 um with pitching coach Jeremy Hefner is um is is doing with them. But um, the earlier turns are pretty good. One thing I, I wanted to point out related to their series uh, against the Phillies, they just took two or three from the Phillies. Um, and in the final inning of the, the third game, Bryce Harper had a homer, his first homer of the year. And what really stood out to me is that like Bryce Harper has been terrible this April, which is like very unlike Bryce Harper. He's hitting 143, 308, 333. And Bryce Harper is like historically been one of the best April hitters ever um he has a career ops over a thousand in april so that's just been like a sort of like random observation i've made because like you kind of go into a, a big mets philly series and you kind of assume like oh like bryce harper in april he's going to torment the mets and they basically shut him down and they were able to take two of three you know what i've really enjoyed is all the mets fans noticing uh overreacting to small samples obviously but pete alonzo in five games as the first baseman has four hits and no homers and two games as a dh he has two hit uh, four hits including two homers and two doubles and he's had some defensive mistakes already. And so now every Mets fan seems to want to just say, Pete Alonso, full-time DH. 
I don't think he wants that. It doesn't help that uh, Dom Smith is not hitting at all. But I mean, that's that's always seemed to be the best spot for Pete Alonso, right? He is a crusher. That is why he exists in baseball is to mash baseballs. I would if think. Dom Smith starts hitting, it's a different conversation. But as you said, he is not. So I think for, until that happens, um, you're not going to see that very often. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we will come back and move on to our three batter minimum. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperice.com. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. We will talk about our three batter minimum, our three most interesting topics of the day. And I got to say, anytime you have a superstar young prospect, you always feel like you want to have that moment, right? It can't just be the baseball card numbers. You want to have like a game or a moment that you point back to and you go, oh yeah, that that is when he like ascended from being really amazingly good to being like a capital D dude. And I think Vlad Guerrero Jr. might have had that moment last night against the Yankees. Comes up in the first inning, hits a home run off of Garrett Cole. Now, did Aaron Hicks help him get it over the wall? Sure, maybe a little bit. Then he's playing the field, and he gets his hand stepped on. And I was watching the game with my son, who's six. There was a lot of blood, right? Like His hand was all bloody. His pants were bloody. You could basically see his skeleton. And my son was like, I don't want to watch that anymore. Like That's grossing me out. I thought for sure... He broke his finger or he had a serious cut and he's going to have to leave the game. He stays in the game. In the third inning, he takes a 98 mile an hour fastball off of Garrett Cole and crushes it for a home run. And then in the sixth inning, he doubles. And then in the eighth inning, he homers again. Three innings, uh, three homers, eight functional fingers. Wow. I mean, you wouldn't think there would be more things that can impress you about Vlad Guerrero Jr. And I got to pass along this fact from uh, our friends at the Cespedes family barbecue. Vlad is still younger than the number one prospect in baseball right now. <laughs> Adley Richmond. I get it. One went to college, one didn't. Fine. But still, wow, there, we are at a new level of peak Vlad, and I'm very excited about it. That home run in the third inning was, from like a hitting mechanics standpoint, was one of the more impressive home runs you'll ever see. Like it was a fastball in on the hands. I don't really know how he got his hand, like how he was able to like turn his, to like pull that ball, turn it and hit it like, you know, 420 feet. The one in the, the eighth inning was just like a classic, like 114 mile an hour laser into the second deck. It was, it was beautiful to watch. But the one in the third inning from like a, a hitting mechanic standpoint was, was phenomenal. Like basically the kind of thing you, that maybe, three guys in baseball could do, I think. Like, it's that, that short of a list. Did you see what Garrett Cole said after the game? I mean, Garrett Cole is arguably the best starting pitcher in baseball. If not, he's at least in the conversation. And he more or less, like, threw up his hands and said, what do you want me to do? Like, how does that guy do that? How am I supposed to beat that from a guy who is an elite pitcher? And the Jays, you know, we always knew the Jays would be a really fascinating and interesting team. And they are, but kind of in a weird way. Uh, the offense has been pretty good. Most homers in baseball, you know, they've got 11. Uh, the fifth most runs in baseball. The pitching has been terrible. <laughs> they, have, they have an ERA over five. 
They have the third worst strikeout rate in baseball. Um, you know, Alec Manoa looked really good, but that's about it. Like Gosman was okay. Kikuchi wasn't great. Ryu was kind of terrible. Jose Barrios didn't even get out of the first inning on opening day. The bullpen, aside from Romano, has been fantastic. Has been super hit or miss. Again, I don't want to get too wrapped up in what happened over the first week of the season, right? But the pitching, I thought, was going to be a big strength, and it just hasn't. But here's the weird thing. The Jays are shifting like I've never seen a team shift before. Last year, they were like the 25th most shiftiest team. They just did not shift very much. This year, they're the number one most shifting team by a lot. They are shifting 80% of the time. Second most is the Dodgers at 57. Against righties, they're shifting 83% of the time. Second most is the Dodgers at 54%. It's such a wild gap. I was actually at Yankee Stadium on Tuesday, and I was on the field. And this, I'd written about this a little bit for the site. And one of the Blue Jays analytics staffers walked past me and looked at me and pointed at me and said, hey, you, we're going to keep shifting tonight. <laughs> which I thought was extremely funny. (laughs) Um, I don't know that this is necessarily a good idea to shift on righties this much, especially when you have Matt Chapman, who can kind of handle that whole side of the field up by himself, but they're certainly doing it and it is weird and it's fun, fun to track, but I don't know. Have you seen all the shifting? Should they still be shifting? Um, I can't say I watched them closely enough to know for sure, but you make a good point regarding Matt Chapman where it's like you have, this incredible third base, like having incredible individual defenders should make it so that you have to do less shifting because they could theoretically cover more ground. So it's a little bit surprising in that regard, especially when it comes to shifting righties, because that's basically like you're asking less and less of Matt Chapman. Yeah. Before we move off the Jays, I do want to at least briefly mention my man Santiago Espinal. I would say 99% of I showed up to camp in the best shape of my life stories are total bunk. It never ends up mattering. I might be in on Espinal. He was the very stereotype of a light-hitting, defensively talented middle infielder. Last year, last two years combined, there were 338 players who hit the ball 200 times. In terms of hard hit rate, out of those 338, he was 331st. Like He was incapable of hitting the ball hard. Shows up to camp this spring uh, with a bunch of muscle, and if you count spring training, seven of the nine hardest-hit balls we've ever tracked have come in the last three weeks for him which is super cool. That's the kind of stuff that does become meaningful quickly. I'm not saying he's a star now. I'm not saying the Blue Jays even need another bat, but wow, wouldn't that be something if all of a sudden Santiago Espinal is a dude? That would be super fun. <laughs> our uh, our uh, our Blue Jays beat reporter, Keegan Matheson, um, who, you, who's who been a guest on this podcast before, has a, a, a newsletter that he does for Blue Jays fans. And all of our, by the, for the record, all of our beat reporters now do newsletters for all their fans. You should subscribe to your favorite team. He, so he, for this week, he did uh, his newsletter uh, topic. His main topic was about Santiago Espinal. He had a quote, and the, the quote from Espinal was, I'm so glad that I gained all that weight. And Keegan wrote, Santiago Espinal and I have different views on our off seasons. <laughs> I I had the pleasure of meeting Keegan in person the other night. The beard is real and it is spectacular. I am extremely jealous. Let's move on to our second topic. We were all very excited about the arrival of Seiya Suzuki. I think probably more so than most of the Japanese imports in the last couple of years. He was the guy who stood out as saying, oh, this guy's going to be you know, a fantastic hitter. Obviously, Otani's in his own universe, right? Over his first couple of games with the Cubs, he has three home runs. He's hitting 400, 524 with a 1,000 slugging percentage. Again, don't get wrapped up in hitting 400. Not going to happen. It doesn't matter. But some of the things that you can look at real soon that are, are meaningful quickly would be plate discipline. Like how often does he swing? How often does he chase his stuff? For example, like 
even in a week, Javier Baez is never going to rate as a disciplined hitter. It's just, it's not who he is. Well, say a Suzuki 99th percentile in chase rate. He has seen 42 pitches outside the zone. He has swung at three of them. One of them, by the way, he actually got an RBI single off of. So there's that. And if you look at the lowest chase rate, oh, Matt, thank you for putting this in here. I did not realize that my man Mitch Garver was number one. Big fan of Mitch Garver. Uh, G-Man Choi, two. Suzuki, three. Christian Yelich will get to in a minute, four. And then Jesse Winker and Juan Soto right after that. Suzuki looks like the real deal. If you can have amazing plate discipline, which he does, and the ability to hit a ball 111 miles an hour, which is his max so far, we haven't seen that cannon of a right arm he supposedly has, but it's apparently in there. He he looks like he's going to be a dude. He looks like, I don't know when the Cubs are going to be good again, but he might be a big part of it when they are. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's he's 27 years old, so like he's very firmly in what would you consider the prime of his career. And and when we did our you know 60 stats for you know you know two stats you know, two stats for every team podcast last week, you know my my number for the Cubs was about Suzuki, and I mentioned how um, I guess it was you know 38 home runs. That was how many home runs he'd hit last year in NPB, and I was sort of like, what do we think? How close can he come to that? Right? Um, he already has three, and the fact that he has hit a ball 111 111 miles an hour already says to me he can like he legit like he legitimately can hit the ball really hard and we know this for a fact we don't have to speculate and it's a really interesting player like maybe already the best player on the cubs and um seems like a you know you don't want to get too far you know he's he's you know first time to the league i'm sure t- t- pitchers are going to start pitching him differently now they have a little bit of a scouting report on him so you you you're definitely going to want to see how you know with maybe teams are going to challenge him more now that they know he won't chase and he's going to be able to really like turn around elite you know mlb velocity but with all that said the early returns are extremely promising yeah patrick wisdom and nick madrigal by the way have combined for two hits total and they are both singles so i think it's still going to be a rough year for the cubs um, although Kyle Hendricks looked amazing on opening day and then a lot less so his second time out. But I do think Suzuki's for real um, with you. Our third topic here in the middle of our show is the old Christian Yelich back. Matt, this is your topic, so I'm going to let you drive it here. But I think a big question for the Brewers coming into this year was, A, would anybody hit? And B, specifically, would they get the old Christian Yelich back? And I don't think you're super optimistic about this. When I say old Christian Yelich, I'm actually talking about like, the old, old like old. <laughs> Marlins Christian Yelich. So like in the early, you know, in the early days that when we, you know, Statcast, and obviously even just he was like, he was notable because he was one of the few guys who had this combination of like hitting the ball really hard all the time, but hitting it in the ground. And there was this, you know, this kind of belief that we would talk about. Oh, this is the kind of guy like if he learns how to elevate the ball, he could really be something because he really, he really, um, he really hits it hard. And to be clear, it's not like he was a bad player. With the Marlins, he was just like he didn't really have any power. You know, he had he had a couple of years where he hit right around 300, but it was like you know in 2015 he hit 300 on the nose with seven homers, right? Like it was like he was hit the ball hard, but it was a lot of singles right in the ground. And then it, later in his Marlins career, you know, he got up to like 20 home runs, and it was like, oh, this guy's a pretty interesting player. And he gets traded as the centerpiece of this big deal to the Brewers, and he. I don't know if he learns to elevate, he starts to elevate the ball and becomes, you know, an MVP candidate or MVP winner and <laughs> a runner-up the next year. And what we're seeing now is he's almost like – it seems like the last couple of years he's reverted back to the Marlins version. And right now he's hitting the ball really hard again. He's got a 71% hard hit rate but an average launch angle of like 
two degrees with a ground ball rate of 50, 57%, which is like higher than it's by far higher than it's been in any season since he came to, to Milwaukee, right? He has two extra base hits, both doubles, zero home runs. So I don't know what to make of this. I mean, the Marlins version of Christian Yelich is probably better than the version the Brewers have had the last two seasons, but it's not the MVP Yelich and not the difference-making Yelich. Have you noticed that the Brewers pitching staff, which was supposed to be outstanding, has not been able to throw strikes like at all? They have the highest walk rate in baseball. <laughs> it's very unlike them. Um, I'm with you. Like He's, he's still an above-average player. I, I think if we're always going to compare him to the 2018-2019 power hitting version we are always going to be disappointed i wish i had a good answer as to like why he could elevate then and why he can't elevate now you know it's it's not what the brewers maybe signed up for when they gave him that contract extension but i don't know he he is an infuriating player because you're right for so many years it was like well he's good but he could be better and then he was better and now he's kind of gone back to well we know how he can be better and we've seen him do it uh but he's not doing it we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and focus on a pair of guys that we should be talking more about. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast and the return of one of my favorite topics, a guy you should know more about. And every year we do this, Matt always gives me a hard time for picking each week's random pop-up reliever who's blowing everybody away. And I tried really hard not to do that each week last year, but I'm going to start with this week's pop-up reliever who's blowing everybody away. Felix Bautista of the Baltimore Orioles. Yes, a name you, a name you definitely knew of before 12 seconds ago. Felix Bautista has what I believe to be the most interesting early fastball of 2022. He has been incredible. I barely knew anything about him until the other day, so I'm assuming you don't either. Let's talk about Felix Bautista for a second. He turns 27 in June. He's not necessarily super young, but he's been around forever. He signed as an international free agent with the Marlins in late 2012. He was not very good in the Dominican League for them over the next two years, walked almost a man an inning, and he was released. Didn't even pitch in 2015. Signed with the Orioles, and he has spent the last half decade ever so slowly working his way up through the system. Now, I first noticed him before the season start when I was reading uh, the MLB Pipeline Orioles report. Even though he was ranked only number 30, because even last year he was walking six guys per nine, they put a 70 rating on his fastball. That's 70 on the 20 to 80 scouting scale, where 80 is elite, right? Like 80s are Billy Hamilton's speed, Giancarlo Stanton's power. 70 is really good. It was tied for best in the system with Grayson Rodriguez, who might be the best pitching prospect in baseball. So he comes on the scene. He's only faced 13 batters so far, five strikeouts and one walk. But the data behind them, the fastball is amazing. Yes, he averages 98, touches 100. Big deal. Everybody does that these days. What stood out to me is everybody wants that rise in fastball effect. He has elite rise, like top of the scales 
rise. I've I've almost hardly ever seen a fastball that moves like this or really doesn't move. It doesn't drop. That's what you want. And when you pair it with a slider and a change that both have elite drop numbers in the other direction, he can make really good hitters look foolish. For example, he struck out Wander Franco. Not easy to strike out Wander Franco. He threw five pitches. The first three were fastballs at 97, 98, and 99. They really only had, you know, three, four, five inches of drop. They barely dropped onto the way of the plate. And then he threw him a couple changeups. 30 inches of drop, and I really implore you to go look at Wander Franco, one of the best bat-to-ball hitters on the planet, looking like an absolute fool against Felix Bautista. Now, is this guy ever going to throw strikes? I don't know. Probably not. But when you do this in your first week in the big leagues, I'm going to pay attention. And now I have a reason to watch Orioles games. Felix Bautista. You know, you brought him to my attention, Mike, and Mike had me watching watching uh, Felix Bautista gifts at his desk the other day, so at least I, I now have a feel a feel for what his the, the the movement on his fastball. I've actually watched a fair amount of of uh, the Orioles this week because they've had some interesting close games against the against the Brewers. Uh, so yeah, I mean this is you know this is what the Orioles need to be doing is sort of working through guys like this who are maybe a little rough around the edges and seeing if they can turn them into into useful pieces either as part of hopefully like the core they're building or you know relievers are always very valuable via trade and so. Um, it, uh, he's an interesting guy. Um, my The guy I want to talk about is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, which is a guy who was one of the top prospects in baseball who looked like he might be a bust, but is starting to show a little bit of promise. I think it's a player you're pretty familiar with, and that's Gavin Lux of the Dodgers. Gavin Lux of the Dodgers was the 20th overall pick in the 2016 draft, a draft that, looking back now, it's not really looking all that great in terms of the first round of like, you know, Future stars out of there. I guess, you know, the number one pick was Mickey Moniak, then Nick Sendell, and you kind of got it down the list before you get to anyone where it's like, oh, is this guy locked in to be a future star? I'm not really sure. You know, Josh Lowe just came up. There's some promise there, but it's not the best group, but they're sitting at number 20. Um, Gavin Lux uh, out of a high school in in Wisconsin, not exactly a baseball hotbed, but he, he blew up prospect lists. And during 2020, he was the number two prospect in baseball, according to MLB Pipeline. And he actually debuted, I guess it was a debut, was it 19? I'm actually need to... 2019, yeah. Yeah, he actually debuted in 2019, and the Dodgers kind of, he was up and down, he never really hit, and it was like, well, what's his future? And I mean, this is, he, he literally debuted, you know, four seasons ago, um, and it was unclear what was going to happen with him. He had a, Entering this year, he had a career 223, 314, 368 career line in 532 plate appearances, but then the the team went and traded AJ Pollock, essentially, which I, I kind of read as like a vote of confidence in Gavin Lux because it basically said, "Gavin Lux, you're going to be playing regularly because we traded AJ Pollock for a reliever, and he's been very good in the short sample this year." But even going back to the end of last year, if you look at like his rolling, you know, expected weight on base going back 100, 250 plate appearances, it's been good and this and so far this season it's been very good he's got a 60 percent hard hit rate 96 percentile and expected weight on base thus far again we're talking about small samples wide variety of like you know pitching i don't expect him to you know hit 353 all year but they don't need him to hit 353 they just need him to show like be some version of the prospect they thought he could be four years ago and maybe for the first time in his career he's starting to show that yeah i think that's right this is not a sob story for a team as talented as the dodgers but teams with less talent would have had more opportunity for Gavin Lux to get in the door is this is what happened right so over the first two seasons over 19 and 20 
you're right, the numbers weren't very good, but he also barely played. You know, 42 games across those two seasons. He was up and down a couple times. Last year, in 2021, you know, they didn't really have a spot for him necessarily. So they're like, okay, well, we're going to play in the infield. We're going to play in the outfield. Corey Seager got hurt. He played shortstop. He cannot play shortstop. Uh, he just doesn't have the arm for it. it. It didn't look good there. They tried to squeeze him into the outfield like at the last second. It didn't look great there either. And it just didn't hit that much. And as you mentioned, you know, you're, you're talking about, well, how does trading an outfielder open up a spot for him? It keeps Chris Taylor in the outfield a little more and away from second base a little more. And that's what he's done mostly so far. I think he's played one game in the outfield, but he has mostly been playing um, second base. You know, the Dodgers have a lot of moving parts with the DH now with both Freddie Freeman and Max Muncy um, as first baseman. So really what's happened is that, you know, Freeman's been playing first base, I think pretty much every single day, like he'll get some DH time at some point, which means that Muncy has not been playing first base. He's been DHing. He's been playing third base when Turner DHs, he's been playing second base a little bit, but Lux so far started all five games, four of them at second. One of them in left field, he profiles, I think, a lot better as a second baseman, but, you know, Dodgers like to have everybody versatile. So if you can get him some time out there, that's great. And, you know, last year he wasn't healthy either. He had a wrist issue, a hamstring issue. He's only 24 years old. It's a, it's a good reminder that not everybody shows up and is Juan Soto or, I don't know, Ronald Acuna Jr. on day one. You know, a good, a good lesson of that is last year was Jared Kelnick looked unplayable. And I think everybody thinks he's going to be a lot better than that. So I'm with you. I think it's kind of funny that I picked the most anonymous minor leaguer <laughs> dude and you picked a number one overall, not overall, but a first round pick who was a highly regarded prospect <laughs> for the Dodgers. <laughs> Although it's it's funny. It's funny you mentioned Kelnick because he's always been compared to Lux because they're both from Wisconsin. And I think we're drafted a year apart, maybe. And so, like, they've always been sort of compared because it's obviously not a baseball hotbed. And there's historically, there's been this belief of like guys from, you know, cold weather places, Midwest, probably need a little more time to develop because, you know, they don't get the same type of competition day in and day out as kids from, you know, South Florida and Texas and Georgia and Southern California. And I think there's some validity to that. Although Jared Kelnick this year has been like almost worse than he was last year. He's like <laughs> one for 15 with nine strikeouts. Um, but I think that to that point, I think that's probably part of the reason why um, you know, th- there's probably a belief, I would guess internally, that that might be some of the reason why um, he might need a little more time is that just the, the the arc of like their amateur career is very different than kids who 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 play in, in these baseball hotbeds. The uh, Mariners have been outscored by 11 runs. Do you think anybody wants to hear that? There's also a cottage industry of Gavin Lux reaction gifts. (laughs) You should really go check them out. He's got this propensity for just making really silly faces when something interesting happens. And I have to say that I love it for it. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, please leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.